our Father. Being in this place really means nothing unless we come into Your presence in our hearts. For Lord, we recognize that this is simply a tin shell. And Father, we pray that You will come and be close to our hearts today. That You would speak to us through the pages, through the words that are written in this book that we have in front of us. Lord, cause Your people to have a burning thirst and a hunger after loving and knowing You. Lord, that is a constant desire of our hearts that we might come to know You in a rich, full way, constantly. That we are being changed week after week. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I always look forward to Christmas time. It's, one, it's probably my favorite season of the year. I love all that comes with it, the decorating and so forth. I really love Christmas time. Now I realize, in fact, I was shocked this week. In talking to a few people about Christmas, they went, Oh no, Christmas is coming up. I said, Is your name Scrooge or something? And what's wrong? But for some people, Christmas represents a stress of relationships as the family gets together and they can anticipate the fighting and the feuding and all of the problems and the political junk that goes on sometimes in families. I never grew up with that. It was always a joyful time for me, but for many people it's a lonely time. For many people it's a frustrating time. In fact, I read uh, one account of a mother Speaking about her children, she called it on the twelfth day of Christmas. And she wrote, On the twelfth day of Christmas, my littlest love gave to me twelve dogs a-leaping, eleven cats a-creeping, ten fingers gripping, nine toes a-tripping, eight drinks a-spilling, seven glasses filling, six friends and things, five telephone rings, 
And can you hear this in the song? Five telephone rings. Four crayon walls, three loud calls, two kisses free, and one mother up a pear tree. (laughs) This time of year represents a lot of things to different kinds of people. We're dealing today in Matthew chapter 2 about the visit of the wise men, or as it's called here in the text, the Magi, who came from the east and found the child Jesus, and they worshipped him, and they gave him gifts, the three gifts that we see mentioned here. When I grew up in California, I had a neighbor who had this scene on their front lawn, life-size, with light bulbs inside, and they glowed. Had the three kings, and they were glowing, and the, the animals were glowing, and Jesus in his cradle was glowing, and I loved it, actually. I thought it was fabulous. I loved Christmas decorations. But later on, when I went to visit Israel and I saw the real thing, in fact, last year we were there for Christmas, I recognized how misinformed I was as to the birth of Jesus Christ. If you've ever been raised on a farm or around animals, you have more of a realistic idea of what took place. Uh, Animals don't stand there and glow. They do a lot of other things. And a stable does not smell like eggnog or pine needles. Jesus was not born on somebody's front lawn in a nativity scene, but in a cave filled with animals that were being sheltered. Born in a feeding trough streaked with saliva from animals. And... When I think of how Jesus came into this world and the people that surrounded him, I'm humbled. That kind of a birth. I remember when my son was born in a sanitary hospital. Nurses, doctors, medicine, oxygen. Everything was clean. Can you imagine a woman for the very first time in her life being in labor in a barn, taking that child out and putting it on straw? On the feet of animals? That's how Jesus came into this world. But we have not only lost the concept of how Jesus was born, but I believe, most important, we have lost the concept of how this time of year is to be celebrated. Of just how God wants us to celebrate His day, His birthday. Now, I am not going to get down today on having lights and having Christmas trees and giving gifts. Frankly, I love decorations and I love presents. And I think God can be glorified as we give each other gifts. I don't really see a big to-do about getting down on that. And if you've come to hear a guilt sermon on why you shouldn't have lights, trees, and presents, you've come to the wrong place. I think those things are okay as long as we remember that Jesus Christ is the main focus. This is His birthday. This is His day. And we should say, Lord, what would you like for your birthday? What can I give to you? Not what can I receive or what kind of a gift list can I give. But Lord, how would you have me celebrate your day? For a lot of people, Christmas is like having a birthday party for someone they never invited. Now can you imagine having a birthday party? Sending out invitations. It's a surprise party. Everybody shows up, all of your friends. And you're all having a gay old, fun old time. And all of a sudden you realize, you know what? We never invited the person who's having the birthday. Oh, well, don't worry about it. Let's just have fun anyway. We'll tell them we had it later. 
The world does that. They celebrate by giving gifts, by getting drunk. They call it Christmas and they leave out him. It's his birthday. He's never invited. He's never even in the scene at all. The story that we come to is a story of giving gifts, but giving them to Jesus. The Magi didn't say, hey, let me give you my frankincense. Oh, great, I'll give you my myrrh. Okay. Which one of you would like my gold? They didn't exchange presents among themselves, although that's fine. But they presented their gifts to Jesus, and we're going to see a beautiful story in that. First of all, verse 1. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, the time that these events occurred was, number one, after Jesus was born. And way down in the text, down several verses, it says in verse 11, in coming to the house. We learn a lot of our Christmas information, not out of the Word, but out of Christmas cards. We picture three men, we don't know if there were three or if there was three hundred, coming to a cradle and a manger as soon as Jesus was born, when they did not come to the stable where he was at here, they came to a house. This is probably months, many months, if not a year or so after Jesus was born. I don't think this happened immediately. It happened probably sometime after Jesus was born. The question that I want to cover, first of all, is when was Jesus born? Not that it's a big issue, but just for your own background information, so you can see how some of these customs originated. Jesus was not born on December 25th. We know that. All of the historical facts point that Jesus was born almost any other day except December 25th. Number one, it says in Luke that the shepherds were keeping their flocks at night. Over in the Mideast, shepherds never keep their flocks outside in the cold winter months. After October, they bring them to the city, never out. Number two, the whole world was to be taxed, where every person, man, woman, and child, had to go to their original birthplace, the birthplace of their forefathers, and be taxed which required a long journey, which was not done or required in winter months. It is supposed that Jesus was born, by the best estimations, probably in April. Then you say, well, how do we get December 25th then? Well, December 25th has been a holiday for thousands of years, even before Jesus Christ came. Thousands of years before this, back in Babylon, on December 25th, it was a very special day that they celebrated the sun god named Nimrod. Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis. I'm going to try to breeze through this, so listen carefully. Semiramis, who married Nimrod, was pregnant with child. During that time, her husband Nimrod died. She had the kid and named the kid Tammuz and told the world that it was, in effect, Nimrod who had been reborn as the sun god. He was born around the time of the winter solstice, December 25th, after a certain point when the days get longer and longer and the sun comes out more fully. It was worshipped the sun god after the winter solstice. The day was called Yule Day, Y-U-L-E, and they celebrated it 
by taking a log, which they called the Yule log, and they would burn it in the fireplace. It would burn away, and they believed that, the legend has it, the next day a tree would appear, symbolizing new life. The infant child died, it was reborn into a fruitful, evergreen tree. And so the Babylonians would worship this tree. They just didn't put it up in their house. They actually bowed down to it and worshipped it. Uh, in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn to it, but let me read what Jeremiah says concerning the Babylonian practice. He says, For the customs of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and the craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with hammers and nails, so that it will not totter. And Jeremiah speaks of the practices of taking the evergreen tree as a symbol of the sun god of Babylon and worshipping it. Now, later on, in the Roman Empire, the Romans on December 25th celebrated Saturnalia, which was basically the Roman version of worshipping the sun god. They celebrated this day, December 25th, by giving presents to their children, by letting the slaves go free for a few hours, by not having executions, it was big of them, wasn't it? And by drunken orgies, they called it Saturnalia, December 25th. By the way, if you are not a born-again Christian today, I don't wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Saturnalia. Because if you don't know Jesus Christ, Christmas is no more than a pagan holiday for you. It's not Christmas. Christ isn't the center of it. It's the old pagan ritual that people have been celebrating for thousands of years. Now, the church decided on that day to have, since no one knew the birth of Christ and the early church never celebrated it, to use that as an alternative for people to worship the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so his birth was celebrated on that day as an alternative. Now, you might be thinking, Oh no, I have one of those trees in my house. I'm going to rip it out. I have one of those trees in my house and I'm not going to rip it out. Because I don't worship that tree and you are, and I are not bound to a ritual. You and I are not bound to the past traditions. I'm sure it does not mean the same to you as it meant to a Babylonian thousands of years ago. Its symbolism is different to you. You have the freedom to have a tree or to not have a tree. But you don't have the freedom to tell anyone else they can or can't have one. You know, you can go overboard sometimes. And if you say, well, Christmas ought not to be celebrated. It is a pagan holiday. And we're just going along with the pagans. Well, if, if that's where you stand, fine. But you can also take that to the extreme. And you can then you shouldn't call the months January, February, March, April, because those are all named after pagan gods of the Romans. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, much the same. So you have to change your whole calendar around if you don't want to follow pagan gods. But I doubt that you do just because you have a Christmas tree. And by the way, you're not going to stop the world from celebrating it just because you don't take part in it. In fact, you can use that as a creative alternative to show love to so many people as you have already with some of the old folks' homes and the orphanages down in Mexico. It can be a beautiful time to demonstrate God's love. Anyway, that's how it came. And I went through that whole mess just to tell you that we don't know when Jesus was born. But probably he was born sometime in the spring 
several months later, these magi came to Bethlehem and found Jesus Christ. Now, let's get into the story and look at the people who are involved. Three groups of people. First of all, Herod. Second of all, the religious leaders. And then third of all, the magi, these Gentile magi. We read about Herod. It says that at the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw the star in the east. We have come to worship him. Now, they were honest. Herod wasn't. When Herod heard that he was heard that, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They quote the scripture. And Herod calls the Magi secretly and he says, hey, go to Bethlehem and find this kid. When you found him, you let me know. I'm going to go and worship him. Now, he was a liar, of course. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him, as you know the story. There is nothing likable that I can find at all about Herod. I have tried to give him a break and find one kernel of goodness in him. I can't find it. He's the Darth Vader of Judea. He was wicked through and through. He had one motivation and that was selfishness. He cared about no one else but himself. He didn't even care about his own family. You might on your own get a Bible dictionary and look up Herod and study the mess that Herod's family was in. Incest. Murder. In fact, Herod the Great that we read about murdered his wife and his three sons. There was a saying that went around in Jerusalem, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because he wouldn't kill a pig, but he would kill his children. The chief characteristic of Herod was selfishness. Self-centeredness. He wanted to get ahead and be seen at the expense of everyone else. Even killing his own wife. If there was anyone in life that posed competition to him, he just axed him. He was very threatened by anyone. He hated competition. And he thought he was always right and no one else was wrong. And so he killed his wife because there was an argument, there was a feud. I remember saying, it says, if a husband boasts that he never makes any mistakes, then he has a wife who did make a mistake. She married him. Herod's whole life was characterized by this. No one will rule my life except me. He was a bulldozer as far as self-centeredness was concerned. Now, does that describe anybody who's sitting here this morning? Maybe like Herod, who've heard the gospel. He knows the significance of the gospel, just as Herod knew the significance of the Messiah. Herod was not religious, but he did believe a little bit in the religion of the Jews as valid. He knew the significance of Jesus born in Bethlehem. He knew what it meant, but he did not worship him. In fact, he tried to murder him because of the competition. Could that describe you? Are you the kind of person who says, look, I'm close enough to God, okay? Lay off. If I come to God, 
I don't want, I don't want to come to God. I don't want Him to rule me. I'm my own boss. He's going to take all the fun out of life. He's going to make me a puppet. I'll lose all my freedom. I'm my own boss. I'm my own ruler. It's the same attitude as Herod. His was only taken to an extreme. Next, we come to the religious leaders. We read about them in verse 4 on. And to be real honest with you, I'm disappointed in these religious leaders. I'm disappointed because these guys knew exactly where Jesus the Messiah was to be born. When Herod said, hey, where's the Messiah to be born? They knew immediately. They didn't have to get a concordance. They didn't have to call Walter Martin on the radio. They knew immediately. They had the scripture. They said, yeah, Micah 5, 2, in Bethlehem of Judea. For you, Bethlehem, though you are... And they quote the scripture here in uh, verse 6. You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The reason that I am so disappointed in these guys is that of all of the people that should be the most excited, these guys should have been the most excited. These guys knew about the Messiah. The whole hope of Israel was the coming of the Messiah. They yearned for it. They looked for it. They knew exactly where he was to be born. There was no excitement. You know, you'd think they'd say, hey, if you Magi are going, can we, can we hitch a ride with you guys? Can we check this out? But they didn't even investigate it. They had the head knowledge about their Messiah, but it wasn't enough to move them. In other words, their knowledge was all academic, not vital. Now this describes, unfortunately, a large number of, quote, Christian people who are satisfied with just being right up here. You can ask them any biblical question and they'll have the orthodox, right, packaged answer. They can give it to you straight. They'll give you the historical, orthodox position of the Christian church. They know every right answer, but those answers don't move them. Those people are hungering after God. They're not thirsting after God. They're not seeking to press into the Lord in a beautiful, intimate relationship. They're just right. And that's all they're concerned about, being right. Let's be right, let's be right, let's be right. You can be so right and be dead right, if you know what I mean. These men were dead right. Now, I think it's good to be right. I think it's good to study. It is good to know the Word of God. I mean, that's obvious. I spend most of my week studying and researching and looking over the Bible. But it is not enough, folks, to be right about what you know. You must accompany that with a hunger and a thirst after God. Just as these magi or excuse me, these religious leaders, knew about the first coming of Jesus Christ, we know about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have all of the scriptures in front of us that tell us the estimated time of arrival, so to speak. And we don't know exactly when he's going to show up, but we have the estimated time of arrival within a generation or so. We have the signs and the scriptures that are laid out. Does the truth of his coming motivate us in any special way? Like Keith Green sings in his song, I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. 
didn't motivate them. These religious leaders had all the answers, but unfortunately, it wasn't in their life. The book that you hold this morning, this Bible that we all carry to church, study it and read it. But don't have a relationship with this book. The purpose of this book and of knowing the Bible is to get to know its author. Not to have a relationship with the book or to be right about what's in the book, but to go beyond the book. Remember Jesus to the religious leaders later on said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. But you've missed the boat, folks. These scriptures testify of me. So we have Herod, we have the religious leaders, and next we have the Magi. Notice verse 1 again. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, or after he was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Notice these Magi have come from the east to worship The religious leaders hadn't come to worship. They were academically correct. They knew where Jesus was to be born. Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Now let's go to bed. The Magi came all the way from the east to worship him. You can see the difference in attitude. Someone who is motivated to worship and someone who just knows all the answers. Academia. In a book that I love, it's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. In the introduction of his book, he talks about an illustration of two different kinds of people who have an interest in spiritual things. Listen listen up. He does this by picturing persons that are sitting high on a front balcony of a Spanish house watching travelers go by on the road below them. The balconiers, he calls them, can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist, or if it can lead anywhere at all, or what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But they are onlookers, he says, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are practical problems. The problems like which way to go, how to make it. Problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action as well. Balconeers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems are different. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, The balconier's problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how evil can exist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the traveler's problem is how to master evil and to bring good out of it. Or again, in relation to sin, the balconier asks whether racial sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible, while the traveler, knowing sin from within himself, asks, what hope is there of deliverance? Or take the problem of the Godhead. While the balconier is asking how one God can conceivably be three persons, what sort of unity three could have? 
And how three who can make one be three persons, the traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust towards all three persons who are now together at work to bring him out of sin to glory. And so we might go on. The Bible is a book for travelers, not for onlookers. You can see the analogy. Some are onlookers saying, hmm, yeah, the Christian faith. I know the talk. I can talk all about the theory of the Christian life. The other people are walking it. They're traveling it. These religious leaders in Matthew 2 were balconiers. The Magi were travelers. They came from the east to worship the Lord. They had seen his star in the east. Now, who were these wise guys, these wise men? What do we know about them? Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about them. The scripture doesn't have a whole lot of information about these wise men, these magi, because the central focus of this chapter is not the magi, it's Jesus Christ. But they came from the east. They were obviously important, because when Herod saw them, he didn't say, oh, what a bunch of religious idiots, get out of here. He was shook up, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Now, I know that you get Christmas cards that have three wise men on the front with their gifts, and that's nice. But we don't know how accurate it is. We don't know if there were three or ten. Most people think twelve, the scholars. Some people think in the company of hundreds. Or at least they came with a company of men, enough to disturb Jerusalem. They came to Jesus and they presented gifts to him. Gold, incense, and myrrh. The magi that we read about were actually a priesthood a group of priests, very similar to the Jewish priesthood, although they were not Israelites. They were brilliant men. They were astronomers. They looked at the stars and could plot courses of the stars and the moons and planets and so forth in their limited time that they were in. They were professors of their day. They were skilled in medicine and so forth. They were brilliant. They were respected And they had a large influence in the kingdom which they came from. By the way, they came from Medo-Persia or the Babylonian Empire. They come all the way from the east by caravan to see Jesus Christ, to see the Messiah being born. We don't know about the star. Now, as I tried to research the star this week, that baffled me. What was this star? I mean, they could see this thing traveling and they'd follow it. And a lot of people have explanations saying it was Halley's Comet back then or it was the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. All sorts of phenomenon. I think it was miraculous. I think to be able to look up into the sky and see a star move and then stop and be able to follow it, that's pretty miraculous. I think God was simply showing them where the Messiah was to be born. But question, how did they know about a Messiah way over in Babylon to come all the way to Israel in the first place? Did that ever baffle you? What are these guys doing here? Here's a clue. In the Old Testament, these magi were the men who ruled in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Remember that? And there was one man from Israel who was set over all of these magi, of these magicians in Babylon. What was his name? Daniel. Daniel was given... All of the information about the first coming of the Messiah. That he'd come to Jerusalem, that he would die, and so forth. And he was ruler over this priesthood. No doubt, 
In speculating, Daniel gave all of this information about the approximate time that the Messiah would arrive, at least when he would come and die. And these magi probably were looking around this time to see if God would show them a sign of his birth. And they were cued in, and they came to Israel. Now look at their gifts. It says, verse 9, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Three gifts that were presented are important for our consideration. First of all, there was gold. Gold speaks of a king. Gold is the present, by the way, that someone would come into the presence of a king. It was taught that you could never approach a king unless you had a gift. And since gold was the king of all metals, it was fit for a king of men. And so these wise men, these magi, from Babylon, made this long trip. They were overjoyed when they saw the star. They went into the house and they gave Jesus, first of all, gold as worship, as a king. They recognized that he was a king. Now, it's always pointed out, of course, that this gold was probably used by Joseph to fund their trip all the way to Egypt when they were fleeing Herod, when he was killing all of the infants in Bethlehem. But the important thing here is that these people worshipped him as a king. They recognized that he was a king. Second of all, they gave incense, or as some translations say, frankincense, which is a present for a priest. In the temple, when they would make offerings and worship, they would always bring incense and offer that before the Lord as a sweet-smelling aroma, the scripture says, to the Lord. They would mingle it with the sacrifices, and it would be a sweet-smelling aroma. It's real interesting that Jesus Christ was our great high priest. You know, in Latin, the word priest is actually translated bridge builder, one who builds a bridge and covers a gap between two parties. Jesus came to build a bridge between God and man to open the way that you and I could come into the presence of God. He was our priest. And the Magi came and worshipped Jesus as priest and as king. By the way, in the Old Testament, sacrifices, and if you've been at Calvary Chapel for any time, we have gone through those sacrifices. You remember that there was the sin offerings and there was praise and worship offerings. Incense was never to be mingled with sin offerings. Offerings of flesh and of wine, only the meal offerings for praise and thanksgiving. Incense was only for worship and praise, not for sin offerings. Even as Jesus Christ was completely sinless, there was no sin at all in him. Remember Jesus went up to the Pharisees and he says, Which one of you can prove me guilty of sin? He was spotless. He was the sinless Son of God. He was our King and our Priest. And next you notice in the text that the third gift that they gave him was myrrh. Now this is weird. This is an odd gift. 
For myrrh was an embalming fluid. That's what it was used for. It was used to embalm the dead. It's almost an insulting gift to give an infant who just came into the world with new life. I mean, you would never give someone as a shower gift a bottle of embalming fluid. They would be insulted, right? And it would seem on the surface that this is kind of odd that Jesus would be given at his birth myrrh, which was embalming fluid. Later on in life, myrrh was covering his body as he was in the tomb for three days and three nights. Gold speaks of a king. Incense speaks of a priest. Embalming fluid speaks of death. But that characterized Jesus' ministry, didn't it? It, This was a prophetic gift, this myrrh. For his life was, he came to die. That was the purpose of his coming, to be poured out as a sacrifice. What to me is amazing is how did these wise men know to bring myrrh to Jesus? How did they know what his ministry would be? How much did they really understand about the Messiah? It seemed that they understood quite a bit with these gifts. As a king, as a priest, an embalming fluid which speaks of his death. But remember again, Daniel, who was head over this priesthood several years before, predicted the death of the Messiah when he came to cover over the sins of the people of Israel. Now, this is something we often overlook at Christmas time. We put up a tree and we put up a manger that has a picture of Jesus and Mary and the sheep and the goats and the cattle. And in this little straw basket is Jesus. And we say, Lord, thank you for Jesus' birth. And we are overwhelmed with his birth. But we often overlook that the reason that he came to the world was to die. And every manger scene, there's always the shadow of the cross. As Jesus was approaching his death, he said, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come into the world. Paul said, This is a saying worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The reason he was born was to die. That was his express purpose in birth, was death. We often overlook that. Now, I think I would cheat you if I didn't have you turn to one important scripture. Isaiah chapter 60. Please turn to it. Now, in this chapter... It's a prophecy about the second coming of the Messiah in Jewish figurative language, but it's literal. It speaks of the second coming of Jesus when he comes again and the nations come to him and they will also present him with gifts. In verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people's But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. 
To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. It's a scene that's sort of like the wise men coming to Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. When the world comes before Jesus Christ at His second coming, when He's presented with gifts, He's presented with gold and incense, but no myrrh this time. That was for the first coming. That spoke of His death. But the death is finished. He's now risen from the dead. He's conquered death. He gives us new life. And when Jesus is worshipped at His second coming, it will not be with myrrh. It will be with gold and incense. Thanking Jesus for being our King, for being our great High Priest. But nothing more prophetic about His death. It's over with. Finally, verse 11, back in Matthew. The greatest gift that we see. It says, On coming to the house... They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. I want you to notice that little word, worshipped. This was the greatest gift that the Magi gave to the Christ child. Wasn't there gold? Wasn't there incense? Wasn't there embalming fluid? It was the worship. And I want you to notice that they worshipped Jesus before they gave him their gifts. That's important, folks. You can never miss that timing. Before we can ever give God our gifts of service, our gifts of money, for them to mean anything, we have to give them ourselves. God must get a hold of us first and get a hold of our hearts. We must belong to Him and worship Him before we ever give gifts that are of any meaning. You see, don't rely on the fact, well, I give money, well, I give my time, I serve every now and then, I do this in the church, I come, I'm active. God must have a hold of your life. And notice, worship came before the giving of the gifts. And by the way, this word worship is a rare word in the New Testament. There's several words for it. This one means to bow down, prostrate. It also means to kiss toward. The Greeks used it of a dog, a pet dog who would come and lick his master's hand. In complete humility. Here's these wise men, these priests, these notable characters coming from the east, bowing down prostrate in humble obedience and worship to this little baby in a manger. These Gentile rulers worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, there's really two gifts or two separate planes here. One is a gift that God gave and the next is the gifts that the Magi gave. First of all, God gave His only begotten Son to the world. That's the greatest Christmas present of all. God gave His Son to the world. Next, the Magi give their worship and their praise themselves. This was a step of faith for them. And then they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and of myrrh. How does God want us to celebrate Christmas? This way. Where we give Him our hearts. Where we give Him our worship where we are in tune with Him, and He has a grip of our heart. It doesn't matter if you give presents, folks. Go for it. Enjoy that. Receive that. But it's His day. You must belong to Him, and you must worship Him before anything else in your life is of any meaning or value. And you can never fully worship Him unless you are fully committed to Him, right? You know, we say, I'm going to go to worship service today. 
To worship something, you must be totally given over to it. You know, we have the phrase, he worships his money, or she worships her children. Meaning they're totally given over to that passion of doing that one thing. We can't worship God unless we're totally given over to him. And that's the point today. I want to underline that more than anything else. Let's not be like those people who it is said, one person said of Americans, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. But let our hearts be totally given over to Jesus Christ today and worship him. Although Jesus Christ was given to the world, this greatest gift of God, he was rejected. It says he came into his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth, was the most loved and most hated person at that time. People loved him, and yet people hated him, wanted to see him dead. And you know what? It still exists today. Jesus is probably the most loved and yet the most hated individual, depending on who it is. And you say the name of Jesus Christ to some people, they go, all right. Bring up the name of Jesus to other people and they get angry at you, right? You know, that's the biggest form of bigotry that there is. To hate Jesus Christ. To hate someone you've never even met. That's the epitome of bigotry. I hate Jesus. You never met him. How do you know you hate him? Jesus wants our hearts at Christmas. As we give gifts, remember that it is his day. Which category are you in? Are you in the category of Herod? Who refuses to be ruled by God? I'm ruling myself. I'm not going to let God get close to me. Are you like the religious leaders? It's all academic. You know the right answers. But it's not motivating a hunger and a thirst after God. Or are you like the Magi? By the way, the most unlikely people to show up and worship Jesus are these people that are Gentiles outside of Israel. They're the most unlikely people to be there. You'd expect of all the people, the religious leaders. But they weren't there. It was all head knowledge. The most unlikely people were on their knees before the Lord. And you know, heaven is going to be filled with unlikely characters. Billy Graham said, the greatest shock that you will find when you get to heaven is, number one, who is there? Number two, who is not? Let's pray. Father, you gave the greatest gift in the form of Jesus, your only begotten Son. You gave all that you could to give. And yet so many different reactions. That of Herod, of hatred, animosity, anger of competition, being driven by how he looked on the outside, not wanting any control over his life. Of the religious leaders, Lord, who only knew answers, but they never knew you. And Lord, those of those precious magi, although we know little about them, we know that they worshiped you, that they bowed down before you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that for all of us who know you, you'd cause that same reaction. Where we give you ourselves this Christmas, and this morning we give you our worship. And Father, I pray for those who are in this auditorium today. Lord, I I want to give them the opportunity to come to know God personally. Lord, I pray that you'd begin to speak to hearts 
of those people who up to this point refused to let you control them or rule them or get close to them, who have had on a hard, macho exterior. Lord, I pray that you begin now to melt their hearts, touch them, bring them to you this morning. And Lord, also touch those who know religious academics, know the right answers, but they don't know you personally. It doesn't motivate their lives with a hunger for you. Lord, bring them to you in a personal relationship. And as we pray, I want to ask you Christians to continue to pray for those who are in this room. Continue to pray right now that God would speak to those around you. I want to give those of you who have never met Jesus Christ in a vital, personal way, a way where God has total control over your life, calls the shots, He is Lord, and you serve Him in a personal relationship. I want to invite those of you who want to know God today and come and worship Him personally. I want you to lift up your hand up in the air so that I can see it and pray for you. If you want to know the Lord, raise up your hand right now. Raise it up high. God bless you in the back. Anyone else? You raise up your hand if you want to know Jesus Christ today. Raise it up high over here on the side. As God speaks to your heart, don't be afraid. You raise up that hand. This is your day of good news. If you're feeling a tugging at your heart, that happens to be the Holy Spirit knocking, saying, let me in. Anyone else? But God bless you, this lady over here. Another one in the back, over here on the side. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Oh, back here in the back. It's not a hand-raising ceremony. It's a day that you're reckoning with your heart. Anyone else? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Is God speaking to anyone else and you want to raise up your hand and say, Lord, touch me, save me? Raise up your hand now. Father, thank you. Lord, give them strength and courage to follow you, even as these magi worshiped you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.